America today is awash with conspiracy theories. We hear that protests and demonstrations in Portland and Seattle are part of a Marxist plot to overthrow the United States Constitution. We are told that a satanic cabal of globalist elites are practicing ritual child abuse and secret lairs underneath the streets of Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, the newly introduced Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act of 2021, under pending consideration by Congress, orders the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, and Department of Justice to investigate the infiltration of the federal government by white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Increasingly, modern people around the globe are in the grip of a deep paranoia. Conspiracy theory, believers, doubters alike, all of us are passing through a dark place as the planet's politics are clouded by the instability taking place around the globe. From lockdown protests in Holland, UK and Germany, to Belarus, Russia, Thailand, Hong Kong, Portland, Chicago, Seattle, Washington DC, and even this week to the US stock market where an open conspiracy of day traders fomented on Reddit may have already been squashed at the behest of powerful hedge fund managers. Instability, uncertainty, and paranoia are now the new normal. As an antidote to the world going mad, this podcast will go back a half a century to look at the life and work of the master of conspiratorial thinking, Robert Antoine Wilson. Wilson wrote the quintessential American conspiracy novel, Illuminatus. He worked directly under Hugh Hefner at Playboy magazine during its heyday in the late 1960s. A writer, editor, journalist who was friends with everyone from psychologist-turned-psychonaut Timothy Leary to computer scientist-turned-UFOologist Jacques Vallée. Wilson would be pulled into the web of allegations and recriminations that surrounded the John F. Kennedy assassination. Wilson didn't take paranoia lying down. He helped organize one of the most radical, civilian-led, psychological counterintelligence operations in the history of the United States, Operation Mindfuck. Pardon my French, but that was the official name for a multi-pronged, real-life counter-conspiracy organized by a ragtag group of hippies, mystics, freaks, writers, and acid heads, broadly unified under the banner of an alternative spiritual movement called Discordianism. This unlikely alliance sought to strike back against powerful paranoids through prayer, magic, hoaxes, pranks, and science fiction, all in service to the goddess Eris. But it wasn't all zany hijinks. Tinkering with the very foundation of objective reality itself led Robert Anton Wilson down a darker path. In the early 1970s, he and his family beat a retreat from the political scene of Chicago to Northern California. But there, instead of escaping from the web of conspiracies and paranoia, he was plunged into the darkest and weirdest chapter of his life, a paranormal encounter with a possibly extraterrestrial intelligence. He would later call this experience Chapel Perilous. Was it some kind of extended acid flashback? Was it trauma sustained from half a decade of fighting against political persecution? Was it telepathic communion with angels, aliens, or literal demonic oppression. This will be left to the audience to decide for themselves. But everyone agrees, even Wilson himself, that this intellectual giant went through a period of his life where his hold on consensus reality became strained and he stepped into the threshold of another realm. Today we begin a two-part series exploring how Robert Anton Wilson marshaled the teachings of Timothy Leary, 
the spirit of the 60s counterculture, and his obsession with alternative spiritual practice as tools to fight back against paranoid politics. This was a man who, like the spirit of our show, stayed strange while staying sane. In the second part of this series, we will focus on Wilson's retreat to California and his passage through Chapel Perilous. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session, tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. In writing this episode, I drew heavily from the works of Robert Antoine Wilson, notably his three-part autobiography, Cosmic Trigger, also the novel Illuminatus, written with Bob Shea and published in 1975. I also drew from the countercultural historian and scholar Eric Davis, whose book High Weirdness, Drugs, Psychedelica, and Visionary Experiences in the 1970s has two excellent chapters on Wilson. And so I will begin with a reading from the late Robert Antoine Wilson, taking from his 1998 book Everything is Under Control, Conspiracies, Cults, and Cover-Ups. This is a book written as he was wrapping up his life's work. And you'll have to excuse the archaic language, but everything he says here resonates beautifully with our current situation in 2021. When I first developed a taste for books around eight or nine, I guess, one of the first I read had the daunting title, Believe It or Not, and contained hundreds of almost unbelievable, but allegedly factual yarns about strange doings on this planet. The author, a popular cartoonist of the time named Robert Ripley, began with a section on oddities of human religion under the classical looking headline, Strange is Man When He Seeks After His Gods. Even at this age, I do not know if Mr. Ripley invented that aphorism or found it in some real classic, but it lingered in my memory for more than half a century. Men and women indeed become strange when seeking gods. As the present work will show, however, they become even stranger when seeking devils. And the narratives they invent have all the sinister charm and eerie cornball poetry of Bela Lugosi at his best moments. It almost seems that the human mind works like a giant magnifying glass. If you turn it to positive thoughts, it will enlarge them and multiply positivity endlessly, as it does for Christian scientists. But if you turn it upon evil, it will soon show you everything you most fear lurking with slavering jaws and green tentacles right outside your front door. Not since the heyday of St. Paul and St. Augustine have so many people felt obliged to look at everything with an evil magnifying glass and howled in such despair at the magnified evil they then saw in this fallen world. 
Neither the government, nor medicine, nor commerce has a monopoly on popular anxiety. Most right-wing Catholics fear the Freemasons, and most Freemasons have worrying anxieties about the Vatican and all its minions. Many Euro-American citizens have taken to the hills in Idaho and elsewhere, believing that our Afro-American citizens are determined to exterminate the white race, either in revenge for slavery or because some other, more fiendish conspiracy has deliberately misled them. Probably a much higher percentage of Afro-American citizens believe that the Euro-American ruling class intends to exterminate them. See Tuskegee Syphilis Study and its links to other entries in the main text of this volume. Black helicopters hover above our rural areas, and only potheads think the helicopters are part of the Drug Enforcement Administration seeking taboo herbs so that the multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical industry can go on gouging us with less reliable medicines at higher prices, according to the most popular theory. Others have darker fears. Some believe the helicopters work hand in glove with a satanic consortium of cattle mutilators, child abusers, demented preschool teachers, and punk rockers. And many citizens believe these sinister aircraft serve an alleged UN slash New World Order conspiracy, which intends to invade us any day now. And of course, nobody trusts the advertisements, not even people who write them. Do you ever have this problem? You're getting ready for a long walk in the woods and you want to roll a spliff of smokable herb. You've got your herb in the bathroom. You're rooting around in your toiletries kit for medical scissors so you can chop it up nice and fine. But then you have to go get a plate from the kitchen. When you're all done, it's a mess. You've got herbs all over the bathroom. Your hands smell like herb. You've got to wash all this stuff and put it back. It takes forever to get out the door. You're not vibing. You gotta light that spliff up before you can feel at peace. Ugh. Luckily, Happy Trees has the solution. A premium grade stash box from Happy Trees. That's happytreesupplies.com. Happy Trees sells a convenient lockable stash box. It comes with a four-piece titanium grinder that will give you the smooth grind you've been looking for. The 50 diamond cut teeth grinds your herb to the perfect size for cones and rolls. The neodymium magnets keep the lid on tight while you grind. There's also a stash jar, which will protect your herb from damaging UV rays and keep moisture in so your stash stays fresh. The airtight seal helps keep smells inside so you can save them for yourself. There's also a metal rolling tray so you can save every precious bud. And everything fits snugly into the box. Plus it has a key so your nosy roommate or your little brother isn't poking around in your stash. They come in three varieties. There's the Metatron's Cube-themed box that has Metatron's Cube etched on the box and every accessory. Metatron's Cube is a sacred image associated with the angel who translates the directives of God into a form comprehensible to humans. This is according to the Kabbalah. There's also a Desert Visions-themed box. It has colorful desert scenes painted onto the accessories. And for those of you who prefer plain, there's a box made of bamboo that is just adorable. I have my own Happy Tree stash box. Yes, I use it to hold my stash. I absolutely love it. These boxes range from $38.90 to $28.90 on the website, happytreesupplies.com. But now Happy Trees is offering a special deal to anyone who listens to this show. Use the coupon code SPECTRAL20 
for a 20% discount. What are you waiting for? Skip the mess, get organized, and preserve your stash from degrading ultraviolet light and snoopy little thieves who try to make off with your herb. Check out happytreesupplies.com. That's happytreesupplies.com. Robert Anton Wilson was born in 1932 in Brooklyn, New York. He suffered from a serious case of polio as a child that left him with an atavistic limp and leg pain. Throughout his life, there were periods where he used a cane to help him get around. Wilson writes glowingly of his parents' decision to use an unorthodox method of treatment called the Sister Kenny Method. It consisted of treating the afflicted muscles of a polio sufferer with hot baths and vigorous massages. At the time, doctors condemned it, recommending plaster casts and leg braces. Wilson credits his parents' willingness to think for themselves and act contrary to the medical authorities with saving him from total lower body paralysis. Indeed, by 1941, the American Medical Association officially endorsed the Sister Kenny method. After a public apology from medical authorities, a 1952 Gallup poll found that Sister Kenny was considered the most admired woman in America. Wilson attended a Catholic grammar school, then later attended a science and technical high school. There he discovered he was not particularly good at science or math, but had a love for poetry, especially the works of Ezra Klein and James Joyce. His interest in avant-garde literature and the highbrow would follow him throughout his life. After high school, he worked at various jobs he was an ambulance driver, engineering aide, salesman, and medical orderly. He began studying bebop and reading philosophy, eventually becoming a devotee of the works of Timothy Leary. He attended two different universities from 1952 to 1958, but he never managed to graduate with a degree. According to his autobiography, Cosmic Trigger, he underwent two different forms of psychotherapy to help with his, quote, sometimes intense bouts of anxiety. One of these psychotherapists was a practitioner of Dr. William Reich. Reich had a very unconventional philosophy of therapy that focused on sexual liberation. Indeed, the therapy may have helped Wilson because in 1960, he married his first and only wife, Arlene, who had three daughters from a previous marriage. They would have two children together and remain married for 39 years until the death of Arlene in the year. Uh, she died at the turn of the century. In 1960, the growing Wilson family moved to Brookville, Ohio, where they joined the School of Living, a back-to-the-land intentional community run along decentralized and proto-hippian lines. Wilson was fascinated by alternative communities and he took over as editor of the community's periodical, Balanced Living. He also worked in town as a manager for a microscope distributor. During this period of his life, now a kind of hippie slash family man, Wilson began treating his anxiety with peyote. Peyote is a cactus found in Texas, which has long been used by indigenous Americans to induce visionary experiences. It contains the chemical mescaline, which is a psychedelic. Wilson reports 40 peyote trips over a period of 20 months, so about every other month he seems to have taken a Saturday to himself, away from his wife and kids, and tripped on peyote. 
He says these were very positive experiences, but they had a yo-yo effect of taking him to ecstatic bliss states, only to let him back down to reality. Wilson reports that he felt like it had some kind of brain-changing impact, but he also suggests he didn't feel he was sufficiently trained in the shamanic arts at this time to be able to get the full therapeutic benefit of a psychedelic trip. So he backed off the psychedelics. Nevertheless, this admitted peyote use would haunt him, for in his 2007 New York Times obituary, the writers there strongly insinuate that Wilson's weirder paranormal encounters could be explained by his peyote use. A little bit unfair, if you ask me, since Wilson stopped the peyote years before he started having paranormal experiences. But he also admits to using LSD on at least one occasion in the 1970s that will all be covered in the next episode. Later in life, he went through a period of unemployment. This is actually the early 70s. And during that period, Wilson reports that 30 minutes of pranayama, breathing, would be sufficient for him to keep his anxiety under control. About a year after his psychedelic experimentation ended, Wilson took a job as editor for Fact magazine and moved his family to New Jersey. And then in 1966, he got his big break. Wilson was offered a position as editor for Playboy magazine, so he moved his family to Chicago. At Playboy, Wilson's job was to edit the letters to the Playboy forum and write italicized replies stating Playboy magazine's official position. Essentially, Wilson was a ghostwriter for the political thought of Hugh Hefner. Wilson describes that position of Hugh Hefner as old-fashioned, mind-your-own-business, John Stuart Mill, libertarianism. Nevertheless, this job would be the beginning of Wilson's entry into the turbulent political world of the late 1960s. For some historical context, President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated in October 1963. Writing critically of the cultural response to Kennedy's death, historian Richard Hofstadter had introduced the term paranoia as a non-medical term for the first time in his 1964 essay on the paranoid style of American politics. Civil rights leader Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968. And overall, Chicago from 1966 through 1968 was rocked by demonstrations and riots. The 1968 Democratic National Convention has been described as, quote, the most tense and confrontational political convention ever in American history after then-Mayor Richard Daley denied so-called anti-patriotic groups permission to protest and surrounded the convention with barbed wire and armed troops. This was also the era of the Vietnam War and the growth of the anti-war protest movement. Despite having plunged himself into the middle of an unstable city during a messy and chaotic time, Wilson saw his gig working for Playboy as a new epoch of his life. He was no longer the grungy, part-time farmer and hippie living in Ohio. He was a, quote, urbane and sophisticated man. He went to parties, and his circle of friends and professional contacts widened. And yet, that very widening would take him full circle back into the counterculture. 1965 to 1969, Robert Anton Wilson became friends with Carrie Thornley, who was editor of a libertarian magazine. Thornley was an Ayn Rand objectivist who had turned towards anarchism. 
Thornley invited Wilson to join his new religion, Discordianism. Wilson agreed. He became an enthusiastic participant in and contributor to the development of this new movement. The foundational story of Discordianism is that Gregory Hill and Carrie Thornley were bowling at night in Los Angeles in 1958, complaining over coffee about the hassles they faced in their modern life they were suddenly struck by a light. Time froze and a chimpanzee appeared, enumerating mysteries like, quote, nipples on males and Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, finally declaring that somebody had to put all this discord here. By way of an answer, the simian then unrolled a scroll inscribed with the yin-yang symbol of the Tao, now modified into the sacred Chao. Instead of the two dots, it contained a pentagon and an apple inscribed with the word Callisti. Themselves scholarly esotericists, Hill and Thornley researched their vision, and they linked the apple to the Greek goddess Eris, known to the Romans as Discordia. Eris is best known for catalyzing the Trojan War in ancient Greece. Snubbed by the Olympians, who did not invite her to a wedding, Eris tossed a golden apple into the gathering. That apple was inscribed with the phrase T. Callisti, which means to the most beautiful. The gods at the banquet began fighting until Zeus commanded Paris to be the judge. Paris chose Aphrodite as the most beautiful, and she rewarded him by allowing him to kidnap Helen of Troy. Thus began the Trojan War. Five nights after the bowling alley vision, both men reported dreaming of Eris, a beautiful goddess, and she told them, I have come to tell you that you are free. Many years ago, my consciousness left man that he might develop himself. I returned to find this development approaching completion, but hindered by fear and misunderstanding. This story is recounted in one of the core sacred texts of the Discordian movement. It is a book titled, How I Found Goddess and What I Did to Her When I Found Her, colon, wherein is explained absolutely everything worth knowing about absolutely anything. It is also identified as, quote, the magnum opiate of Malcopolis the Younger. Many early editions of this sacred text also came stamped in large block letters with the words, not junk mail. The Principia Discordia would be continually rewritten over the years, with new members becoming official saints or popes of the movement, and adding new elements to the Principia, or even writing their own holy texts. The core teaching of Discordianism is that there are three principles, or katmas. They call them katmas instead of dogmas, and they are, one, the aneuristic order, the existence of order, two, the aristic order, the existence of disorder, and three, both the aneuristic and aristic order are illusions. The audience may recognize the antinomy here. It is suggestive of the cones of Zen Buddhism. And here's an entry on Discordianism from Robert Anton Wilson's 1998 encyclopedia. Discordianism. Discordianism claims to be the world's first true religion and is based on worship of Eris, goddess of chaos. One of its two founders has been accused of complicity in the John F. Kennedy assassination. While some claim the Discordian movement is a complicated joke disguised as a new religion, 
Discordians counter it is actually a new religion disguised as a complicated joke. The Discordians are divided into two camps. According to the rule, we Discordians must stick apart. On one side, the Arisian Liberation Front, ELF, led by Hochi Zin, or Carrie Thornley, promotes anarchist-slash-libertarian anti-authoritarianism. And on the other side, the paratheo anametaphysic hood of Eris Esoteric, or P-O-O-E, excuse me, P-O-E-E, Po, led by Melkopolips the Younger, or Gregory Hill, teaches a more mystic, passive doctrine, vaguely akin to Charles Fort, pataphysics, and deconstructionism. These two discordianisms represent the material manifestation of the metaphysical Hodge and Podge, see Sacred Chow. Other high discordian priests or priestesses include Lady L, Onrock the Backwards, Mordecai the Fall, Lola of Capitola, and Fang the Unwashed. The audience may be wondering, uh, what is going on here? Well, here is one of the founders, Greg Hill, confessing in a letter to a friend. We say that we worship the goddess Eris. We then organize into a super confusing, funny, crazy church that points A, how silly organized churches are, and B, just happens to have a lot of good religious philosophy in it. The result is both entertaining and instructive, and we are proud of it and plan to promote our message as much as we can. Robert Antoine Wilson simply called the Discordian Project, quote, guerrilla ontology. The Discordians grew to comprise a network of countercultural figures and political activists with Thornley at the center. And this network of fellow travelers would mobilize in 1968 when their founder was accused of being involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. He even faced imprisonment for a crime he almost certainly did not commit. So Thornley had been in the United States Marines. He served along another gentleman, Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald would later defect to the Soviet Union, then return to the US before assassinating President John F. Kennedy. When Oswald returned from the Soviet Union, he and Thornley had lived only a few blocks away from each other in the city of New Orleans in Louisiana for a considerable length of time, although Thornley would always deny having ever seen Oswald again after their stint in the military. This coincidence becomes outright bizarre when you add to it that Thornley had been so struck by Oswald's eccentric behavior during their time together in the Marines that he had actually written a fictional book based on Oswald's life. He had written this book before the assassination of President Kennedy. So Thornley felt personally invested and connected to Oswald. And after the Warren Commission, he became convinced that his old roommate could not have shot the president. So he went down to New Orleans and he talked to District Attorney Jim Garrison about the issue. District Attorney Jim Garrison is said to have been looking to make a name for himself, but he was also one of these people who had become destabilized by America's climate of conspiracy theories and paranoia, for he became convinced that Thornley had himself been involved in the assassination of JFK. Garrison noted that Thornley had lived near Oswald before the assassination, and he even looked like Oswald. He decided that Thornley was a front man for the CIA, that he had impersonated Oswald in New Orleans, running around the city and acting suspiciously, 
so that people would later remember Oswald as an unstable maniac. Garrison was so convinced of this theory, he actually indicted Thornley and tried to bring him to trial in New Orleans. With their friend and fellow Discordian saint under attack, Robert Anton Wilson and Greg Hill mobilized the Discordian network. They had connections now to free-thinking and countercultural journalists, writers, and editors around the country, and together they conceived a massive counterintelligence project called Operation Mindfuck. The idea behind Operation Mindfuck was the reverse gaslighting of Jim Garrison's office. Gaslighting is where you try to make someone think they're crazy when they're not, but the Discordians aimed to actually make someone think they were sane when in fact they were being pulled deeper into their own paranoia. The Discordians discovered that certain employees in Garrison's office were believers in the Illuminati, an 18th century anti-monarchical and anti-papal conspiracy that really existed, but more about that in a second. Important to note, frequently the Discordians would reference their own movement in these memos and documents that they were inserting into the popular press. They would insinuate various kinds of links between the Illuminati and the Discordian movement. Since Garrison's office was already paranoid, since Garrison's office was already looking into Discordian leader Thornley, and since Garrison's office was already disposed to believe in the Illuminati, it made sense to think that creating a mass of false leads could pull the DA's office into a dark rabbit hole of conspiratorial thinking. At the same time, by inserting increasingly ridiculous stories about themselves and the Illuminati into the popular culture, the Discordians were poisoning the well, ensuring that the public, maybe even future jurors, who might be involved in Thornley's upcoming case, would be strongly prejudiced against the possibility that Thornley really was a frontman for the CIA. They would already have heard about Thornley, his relationship to Discordianism, and alleged Discordian links to every insane conspiracy theory under the sun. They began planting stories about how different groups that existed in the U.S. had connections to the Illuminati in the national press. Everywhere they could, they weaved an interconnected set of allegations and illusions. Thornley himself is said to have actually produced a conspiracy kit it was a collection of stamps and other tools for faking official-looking documents, and he distributed this kit to the Discordian leadership so they could manufacture fake memos from the Illuminati. And this project had a huge effect, because Wilson writes in his autobiography, New exposés of the Illuminati began to appear everywhere, in journals ranging from the extreme right to the ultra-left. Some of this was definitely not coming from us Discordians. In fact, one article in the Los Angeles Free Press in 1969 consisted of a taped interview with a black phone caller who claimed to represent the Black Mass, an Afro-Discordian conspiracy we had never heard of. He took credit on behalf of the Black Mass and the Discordians for all the bombings elsewhere attributed to the weather underground. Other articles claimed the Illuminati definitely were a Jesuit conspiracy, a Zionist conspiracy, a banker's conspiracy, etc., and accused such worthies as FDR, J. Edgar Hoover, Lenin, Aliester Crawley, Jefferson, and even Charlemagne of being members of it, whatever it was. 
The net effect of all this was to discredit District Attorney Jim Carrison, to make a mockery of the charges that he was bringing against Carrie Thornley. And whether or not it had any real causal impact, the charges against Thornley were ultimately dropped. The good guys, if that's what you want to call them, won the day. The real winners, of course, were Robert Antoine Wilson and Bob Shea. They were working at Playboy magazine through it all and processing an ever-increasing quantity of letters from paranoid psychotics, cranks, and JFK assassination researchers, many of them raving about the CIA and the Illuminati. Bob and Robert decided they were going to turn Wilson's prank into the ultimate conspiracy theory novel, and so the cult classic work of metafiction Illuminatus was born. Illuminatus starts from a historically accepted premise. Yes, there really was an organization founded in 1776 by an ex-Jesuit, Adam Wishopt. It was a free-thinking order of German Freemasonry. The group was banned by the Bavarian government in 1785, but anti-enlightenment writers in the 18th century blamed it for the French Revolution. Fear of the Illuminati was also widespread in the early days of the United States. These fears were revived by the militantly anti-communist John Birch Society in the 1960s before the Discordians began their counterintelligence operation. The John Birch Society was an anti-communist organization who maintained that an international cabal of bankers and political leaders were working to establish a new world order. The plot of Illuminatus begins with Detective Saul Goodman and Barney Muldoon investigating the bombings of a left-wing magazine whose editor has also mysteriously disappeared. Going through the notes of the bombed office, they find all sorts of documents connected to the Illuminati. Reading through these documents, the narrator summarizes what becomes the central premise of the book. The theory, in essence, was that the Illuminati recruited people through various fronts, turned them on to some sort of illuminizing experience through marijuana or some special extract of marijuana, and converted them into fanatics willing to use any means necessary to illuminize the rest of the world. Their aim, obviously, is nothing less than the total transformation of humanity itself, along the line suggested by the film 2001, or by Nietzsche's con concept of the Superman. In the course of this conspiracy, the Illuminati were systematically assassinating every popular political figure who might interfere with their program. That's the quote. Also important to note, the good guys of Illuminatus are the Discordians. Wilson and Shea creatively reimagined their own friends in the Discordian movement as heroes, armed with rock music and a nuclear submarine, and waging a global secret war against the evil Illuminati. And if you get a paper copy of the book Illuminatus today, what Wilson and Shea did was actually produce illustrations that look like photocopies of notes and memos in the book. Those notes and memos reference both existing conspiracy theory literature, including Bircher pamphlets, and also they contain reference to letters printed in Playboy magazine. Often, but not always, these are letters that Robert Antoine Wilson had himself planted as part of a counterintelligence operation 
against District Attorney Jim Garrison. So you can see how Robert Anton Wilson literally wrote himself into conspiracy theory history by literally participating in a conspiracy himself, a conspiracy to reverse gaslight a district attorney. And then he published a book which declares itself to be fiction, but draws from real historical fact while mixing that fact in with hoaxed material in order to blur the line between fact and fiction. This is the same kind of mythos-building realism we see in the works of H.P. Lovecraft, who Chris and I discuss in our Christmas episode of Spectral Skull Session. Interestingly, Lovecraft himself appears in Illuminatus. And so Illuminatus was a success. It secured Wilson's entry into the world of full-time writing. And yet Wilson's willingness to blur the lines between fact and fiction in a kind of meta-myth-making project would haunt him for the rest of his life. Wilson writes in his autobiography that at public speaking events, he would be accused of being a member of the Illuminati himself. Here is a quote from Wilson. Once when I was appearing on a radio show on KGO San Francisco, where listeners call in and talk to the guests, a woman phoned to say I knew so much about the Illuminati that I must be one of them. I became whimsical. Maybe, I said, the secret of the Illuminati is that you don't know you're a member until it's too late to get out. This was too metaphysical for the caller. Furthermore, she said triumphantly, pursuing her own script, you're the people who control the Federal Reserve and the Morgan and Rockefeller banks. Well, said the writer of satire, temporarily displacing the skeptic, I certainly won't deny that. It can't help but improve my credit rating. That woman is probably still telling her friends how she got one of the Illuminati to confess right over the radio. Actually, I no longer disbelieve in the Illuminati, but I don't believe in them yet either. Let us explain that odd remark quickly before we go any further in the murk. In researching occult conspiracies, one eventually faces a crossroad of mythic proportions called Chapel Perilous in the trade. You come out the other side either a stone, paranoid, or an agnostic. There is no third way. I came out an agnostic. We will be getting to Chapel Perilous in the next episode. Now this episode is coming to a close, and I want to reflect on Robert Anton Wilson, the man who fought paranoid conspiracy theories by inventing a zany counter-conspiracy. What is the lesson to take here? Well, Wilson saw himself as working to expose and mock what he called reality tunnels. These are set ways of thinking about the world that limit our sense of the possible. Wilson thought that becoming a true believer in any conspiracy theory involves entering a reality tunnel. But he also felt that the entire larger world was filled with people who are in the grips of reality tunnels. Wilson maintained that organized religion consists of reality tunnels, but so too are political ideologies, both the left and the right. Wilson himself was a skeptic, and not a skeptic in the sense of the contemporary skeptic movement, people who systematically work to deflate any proposition that runs counter to the orthodox teachings of contemporary science. He was more like those ancient Greek skeptics who sought to achieve emotional tranquility by distancing themselves from their own judgments. This is what Wilson means by calling Discordianism guerrilla ontology. 
He hoped that by introducing zany, half-baked religions and over-the-top conspiracy theories, he would shock people into letting go of their own reality tunnels and becoming a little more open-minded. My hope is that this episode might be helpful to our listeners. A lot of us who are interested in the occult, supernatural, and unexplained have episodic encounters with the heebie-jeebies. There's the feeling that you've seen something out of the corner of your eye, the sense that you're being watched, the suspicion that you're being stalked or your phone is being monitored can often be all too real, especially in an era when the eccentric really are subject to higher than usual amounts of scrutiny and distrust. This, of course, is worsened by our news from all ends of the political spectrum, from the far left, the center left, the center right, and the far right. Everyone is screaming at us that we are surrounded by nefarious, sometimes outright demonic forces. Wilson himself habitually sought out and read the works of people he disagreed with, claiming that each year he read two religious texts, even though he was a committed agnostic, to help him identify the ways in which his own reality tunnel might be filtering out relevant information. And I'm going to close with some of Wilson's remarks on reality tunnels from his autobiography, Cosmic Trigger. Since we all create our habitual reality tunnels, either consciously and intelligently, or unconsciously and mechanically, I prefer to create, for each hour, the happiest, funniest, most romantic reality tunnel, consistent with the signals my brain apprehends. I feel sorry for the people who persistently organize experience into sad, dreary, and hopeless reality tunnels, and try to show them how to break that bad habit but I don't feel any masochistic duty to share their misery. This book does not claim that you can create your own reality in the sense of total but mysteriously unconscious psychokinesis. If a car hits you and puts you in the hospital, I do not believe this is because you really wanted to be hit by a car or that you needed to be hit by a car, as two popular New Age bromides have it. The theory of transactional psychology which is the source of my favorite models and metaphors, merely says that once you have been hit by a car, the meaning of the experience depends entirely on you, and the results depend partly on you, and partly on your doctors. If it is medically possible for you to live, and sometimes even the doctors think it is medically impossible, you ultimately decide whether to get out of the hospital in a hurry or to lie around suffering and complaining. Most of the time, this kind of decision is unconscious and mechanical, but with the techniques described in this book, such decisions can become conscious and intelligent. Next week, we will explore the tools that Wilson developed for altering one's own reality tunnel, and we will follow his perilous journey into a world of cosmic paranoia known as Chapel Perilous. Until next time, I have been Dane. Stay strange and stay sane.